Let's dive in this morning. Uh, Leonard read chapter one for us, and we're not going to cover all of chapter one today. We're going to get, you know, mostly through it. But I've titled the message this morning, Man on the Run. We looked at this quote last week. You know, Jonah is one of those books where there's just a lot to get distracted by. There's so much going on. There's so many ways our eyes can kind of get turned in different directions. I love this quote by a man named G. Campbell Morgan. I think he captures the essence of what we want to see as we go through. He says, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And that's really what we want to see through the book of Jonah. We want to see this this God that we serve. We want to see his character. We want to make observations about who he is, what's important to him, where his heart beats for, for people. And we're going to see that throughout the book. Another quick quote as we're just introducing the book this morning, getting into chapter one, that's Warren Wearsby. He said it really well, I think. He says, what is the book of Jonah about? Well, it's not simply about a great fish. Fish is mentioned four times or a great city that's mentioned nine times, or even a disobedient prophet mentioned 18 times. It's about God. God is mentioned 42 times in these four chapters. So it's just heavily emphasizing God. And this is what he, how he summarizes the book. The book of Jonah is about the will of God, how we respond to it. It's also about the love of God and how we share it with others. Really, uh, you know, Wearsby had a way of turning a phrase and just really putting it in summary fashion what this thing is all about. That's where we're going today. And this morning, we're going to start looking at a man of God. Jonah, make no mistake, Jonah was uh, a man of God, but he was a man of God who was in complete rebellion against God. And you say, how can that be? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Well, we're going to read about it this, this morning. In fact, when you look at Jonah, his, you look at his theology, it was orthodox. He could probably, if you were sitting with Jonah, he could probably spin you through the Old Testament pretty easily. He understood theology. He understood God's character. He, he conceptually would sign off that God's plans are perfect. He knew all of God's attributes and yet he simply disagreed with God's evaluation of the Assyrian Empire. That's what he disagreed with. And he disagreed so, so strongly that, that, that God wanted to provide a Gentile nation with an opportunity to change their mind, that Jonah disagreed so strongly and said, you know what, God, you can do it, but I don't want my name associated with it. If that's what you want to do, God, I know you're all powerful. I know you can do whatever you want. Just don't put me in association with this message or their response. And we're going to see that he did not, he was not interested in God's mercy. And so Jonah ran. Jonah ran and tried to avoid it. And so let's dive in here in verse one. And what we're going to see is that Jonah gets a direct word from the Lord. And this is how this worked. Verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. And so again, we see it's direct revelation from God to the prophet Jonah. In other words, there wasn't, Jonah couldn't give an excuse. It's like, well, maybe I misheard God here. Maybe, maybe I didn't get the message communicated to me like that old game of telephone. I think, you know, Jimmy screwed up the message over there. So I didn't get it quite way. No, he got it directly from the Lord. He knew exactly what the Lord was going to do. Now here's the problem. And we brought this up last week. One of the things that God is going to ask Jonah to do is so unique that he never asked another Old Testament prophet to do it. And that is, Jonah, you're an Old Testament prophet, you're a Jew, and I'm going to ask you to take a message to a Gentile nation. Never happened in the Old Testament, except for Jonah. He was unique in that way. 
Every other Jewish prophet delivered a message to the Jews. That was the, the mode of communication was to the Jewish nation. And oh, by the way, Jonah's also unique because the normal response of a prophet is, God told me to jump. My answer is, how high? <laughs> Where you want me to go, Lord? Anytime, Lord. And, you, and you'll see that throughout the Old Testament, right? Abraham gets communicated with God. And, it, and then the next word is like, and immediately Abraham did this. Or the next morning, Abraham did this. Jonah's unique because his response was unique. He didn't respond in the affirming the Lord or in a positive way. And so that's also going to make him unique. We mentioned last week that he's the son of Amittai. We don't learn anything about Amittai. This is the only thing we know about him. It's, he's Jonah's dad, right? But what it does tell us is a couple of things. It implies that Jonah was a well-known, respected prophet because they used the historical reality of his father's name to, to kind of communicate where he's from. But it also argues that he is a real person that really existed because this book of Jonah is often under attack by liberal scholars as being some just made-up book, right? How can a fish swallow a dude, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the attitude. And so this all kind of builds to that, and it, and it builds to the historical reality of Jonah, just right here in verse 1. The other thing we learn about Jonah, and I brought this out last week, is <clears throat> at this time in his career as a prophet, he was a very well-established, and I think beloved prophet. And the reason for it is we have his, his prophecy recorded here, 2 Kings 14, 25. It says that he, speaking of the Lord, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet that was from Gathheper. And so what this did for the nation of Israel is they liked Jonah. Because Jonah basically was able to communicate a message from the Lord that said, guess what? God's going to expand your boundaries. He's going to expand your territory. In fact, we brought this up last week. If you can't read anything, that's cool. If you can see the orange spot, you're seeing what I want you to see. That was what Israel owned before this prophecy in terms of landmass. This is what they picked up after that prophecy. That orange landmass is what grew. So you can see where Jonah's like, man, I love that message, Lord. Yeah, I'll deliver that message, Lord, because everyone's going to like me. In a nationalistic sense, this is saying, we're going to make your nation bigger, stronger, more wealthier. You're going to own more land. And Jonah's like, I volunteer as tribute, right? I'll, I'll give that message because I know it's going to be responded to well. And so this is where he's at in stage of life. Now he's got a different message to communicate. He's got a, a different divine assignment here. And we're going to pick that up in verse 2. Because the Lord's going to say, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And we're going to see right there in this verse, God gives three commands. Arise, basically get up, stand up, right? Go, make a, a, a travel motion to, to this area, and then cry out. You're going to call out, you're going to summon, you're going to proclaim. Again, they're all imperative commands. And they're clear to understand. There's nothing, uh, you know, there's no ambiguity here. God ha has told Jonah exactly what he wants him to do. And um, he says, we're going to go to, you're going to go to Nineveh, 
that great city. Remember Nineveh, and we're going to use these, these terms interchangeably, but Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So oftentimes we'll refer to the Assyrians or the Ninevites. We're talking about the same people. This is the capital city of this nation. And if you recall, last week, the, the, the city was originally founded by Nimrod all the way back in Genesis 10 before the Tower of Babel. So this city, Ninevite, or Nineveh, had been around for a long time. Now, what's really interesting in, in terms of just looking at it geographically from where Jonah was, it was about 550 miles. It was a, a month. It would have taken him a month to walk there, okay? So this is a long trip. This isn't just like, yeah, let me roll over to Nineveh for the weekend, drop this message, and come home. This is a month there, deliver the message, and then a month back home. So, so quite a trip. And not only that, but that pathway to Nineveh was loaded with bandits that sought to rob you and beat you up. And as we've heard of the Assyrian terrorists, they also lined all the roadways into Assyria. So it was going to be a dangerous trip on top of it. And so there's a lot of things working probably in Jonah's mind. It's saying like, I do not want to do this. And there's a lot of things kind of working against him fulfilling the Lord's will here. Again, Nineveh is called a great city. They were presently under duress. I'll talk about that here in a second. But the population was around 600,000 people if you counted the suburbs. That's kind of an estimate. That's a, big, that's a big city in those days. Their walls were 100 feet high. They had 50-foot thick walls in some areas. They had city walls that were miles in length. I think one was over seven and a half miles long. They had waterways surrounding the city that made it hard for armies to cross over and attack because they had canalways. We'll hear about that more when we get to the book of Nahum. Um, But they were well-fortified. They were a well-fortified city. They were under a little bit of duress. If you remember last week in the introduction, there was a 40-year period where they were, they were weak. They had neighbors from the north that were encroaching on the city of Nineveh, got within about 100 miles. Um, we talked about that. We talked about internal dissension. We've never seen that in politics, right, where, where a country has internal dissension and it actually impacts the nation. Well, that's what was going on in the Assyrian Empire. We also saw that there were multiple plague outbreaks in the city of Nineveh, and also a full solar eclipse all around this time that Jonah is being sent to them, indicating to the pagan mind, at least, that they were under some kind of divine judgment. Somebody was unhappy with them. You know, we were, uh, you know, you hear the phrase in our culture, LGBTQ. I know there's some more letters now. I don't know the rest of them. And then they put a plus at the end, right? And it's kind of the same concept in the pagan mind with gods. It's like, and you see that in, in, in Acts 17, right, where Paul's preaching at Mars Hill and he walks around and they, they got all these monument to gods and then they got one to the unknown God too, right? That's the plus. <laughs> and, so, and so in their mind, it's like, who have we offended? Well, it's one of this, 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 or, or plus, you know, the unknown God. They don't, they don't even know. So they're going through a time of weakness. This is what's happening in Jonah's day. They were pagan idolaters. They worshiped two main, two main gods, a, a, a male deity, Asur, and a female de- deity, Ishtar. These were the chief male and female deities. And what was interesting about the Assyrians is this, the, the, their ideology, and this is so important to understand, also to put into mind why Jonah probably thought, even if they respond positively, they're just going to go back to what they always do. Because their ideology was such that they believed that they had a a divine mandate to conquer other people. 
That was their ideology. It wasn't good enough to coexist with your neighbors. It was if this neighbor is not under our control, then that is offensive to our divine deity. And so we need to take control of them, put them under our control, because in that way we take chaos and bring it into civilized order. That was their mindset. I mean, there, there are other groups in our world uh, that think the same way right now. It's not coexist. It's me take over you. It's me dominate you. It's me bring you into uh, under our wing. And this is how the Assyrians thought. They were wicked. Notice back, go back in verse two. This is why God is sending Jonah. Four gives us the reason, right? A great, great Bible study word. You gotta, we gotta see, right? Four, it's giving us the reason. Why is God sending Jonah? Their wickedness has come up before me. And we talked about this a little bit, but the word wickedness just means exactly what you think it means, evil, wrongdoing, not morally good, etc. And last week, we looked at the fact that Assyria was one of the cruelest, vilest, ruthless, most violent, idolatrous empires that ever existed in world history. We talked about, I don't want to go into a lot of details, but just to remind you, this was the first empire of terrorists, and not just terrorists, um, sadistic terrorist, like coming up with creative ways to torture people and to engage in psychological warfare with their enemies. You know, we, we talked about how they would skin their live captives and then, and then staple the skin of human beings to the city walls. And we talked about how they would decapitate the heads of soldiers and stick them on a, on a rail and a post and put them outside of the city walls so that other countries could see what they do to anybody that would oppose them. These guys were crazy wicked. They came up with new ways to torture people. It's basically what this city did and, and, and this empire did, and nobody liked them. In fact, when we get to Jonah, I'm just going to mention two things. We won't go there, but when we get to Jonah 3.8, even the king of Nineveh recognizes that they're evil. He understands what they're doing. We get to Nahum 3.1, it refers to Nineveh as the bloody city. And do you know if that if anybody would have read Jonah's prophecy about their evilness or Nahum's prophecy about their evilness, do you know that other people around the world would have said, amen, I totally agree with that? They would have said, Assyria is the bunch, they're the biggest jerks in, in the world, right? So they would have agreed that nobody liked the Assyrians. And so we're setting the stage for why Jonah did what he did. Now, here begs the question early on. Notice all Jonah is getting at this point is, hey, I want you to arise, go, and cry out against it, right? So you'd think Jonah's like, I'm in. I can't wait to pronounce something against this nation. And, and, and he may have thought God was finally going to wipe out the Ninevites. So that's, if that's the case, why was he so reluctant to go? Have you ever thought about that? It's like at this point, Jonah doesn't exactly know what the message is. He just knows it's going to be a negative message, but he still wasn't into it. And I'll tell you why. It's, it's just, it's kind of a really fascinating thing. Everyone hated the Ninevites. Everyone in the world, I mentioned that earlier. In fact, there's a story that's going to happen in the future. It's in 2 Chronicles. In fact, let's go there. Hold your finger in Jonah. Let's just go to 2 Chronicles briefly. Back, back to your left there. 2 Chronicles 32 records a story. Again, it's future uh, to Jonah here, but this is just going to give us a perspective 
on how people felt about Assyria. So 2 Chronicles 32, verse 20. Now, because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land, and when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Now, if you've got your sermon notebook, you'll see in the timeline that I've got an event that happens in about 700 BC, so about 50 years after Jonah's prophecy, where the Assyrians, uh, although they had been shown mercy by God, had started to come against the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were, they were like launching in, putting that country under a siege. And God miraculously delivers Judah from the hands of the Assyrians. In fact, he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That's what he does. This is what, why this king fled. But I want you to see the response, okay? So that's kind of the, the scenario. Look at verse 22. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And then notice this next verse. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem in presence to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. See, they were throw, the, the world was throwing a party because the Assyrians had been, uh, many of them had been slaughtered and killed. This is how people felt about this nation. And so the reason why Jonah was not excited about going to Nineveh or even giving a negative message is recorded in Jonah 4, 2. Let's go there real quick so you can kind of see his mindset here. Jonah 4, 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah wanted is what Nahum's going to be able to preach 100 years later. Jonah wanted to preach judgment on Nineveh without giving them any warning. Jonah wanted to preach judgment on Nineveh without giving them an opportunity to repent or change their mind. And so as Jonah is getting this message, he knows one thing. He's going to them. We're going to get his message a little bit later. He's going to give them a time frame to respond. And once Jonah says, oh, I'm going to them, they got a time frame to respond Here's God, he's gonna give them a chance. And I don't want a part of that. And this is what he's upset about. This is why even though he's pronouncing a message of judgment, he doesn't want his name associated with this prophecy because if they respond, guess what? Now he's not the prophetic hero that he once was with the land grab prophecy. Now he's got a little bit negative connotation, not only in Israel, but but where? The world. He's going to be associated with this prophecy. He doesn't want any part of it. And so you know what? He runs. That's his, that's his best idea. Let me just get out of here. Um, I don't, we'll talk about that. I don't think theologically, he just started getting really dumb theologically, thinking he could actually run from God. I think what he thought simply was this, is that if I run, God will just find somebody else. And then he'll deal with me, but I, I just don't want to be associated with it. This is how strongly Jonah felt about this. In fact, verse three is going to tell us this. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice two repeated phrases in this verse. I've highlighted them for you. He, he thought he could escape the presence of the Lord, and then he went down. And I know I don't want to make too big of a point here, but we're going to see that phrase, he went down a couple of more times. And you know what? When, when you and I or when Jonah is trying to escape the presence of the Lord, there's only one direction you can do that, and that's going down. And that is what carnality in the minds even of a saint uh, a prophet of God, a man of God, a woman of God, even, even those kind of people, when they flee the presence of the Lord, they're not interested in fellowship with the Lord. The only direction that leads is down. It, it only leads down. We're going to see that come up a couple of more times. And so he flees to Tarshish. Um, this description tells us a lot because we're about to pull up a map because not only is he, he fleeing in the opposite direction of Nineveh, but he is going to the known extreme of the known world that day. So, so in Jonah's mind, it says, Nineveh's this way. I'm going to run as far as I possibly can this way. And this is kind of what it, that map looks like. Again, Joppa, 550 miles to Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish, which is the very bottom tip of Spain. Now, those of you that know American history and Columbus and all the explorers, what did they think happened when you sailed off the west coast of Spain for many years? They thought as soon as you got out of the, the site, the, you know, the, the world just ended, you just, your boat just dropped off the, the cliff of the, the world, right? And so in that day, that was as far west as he could go. That's where he was going. And so it was going to put him 3,000 miles from where he was supposed to be when he got there. And this is what Jonah is thinking. Notice what he thinks he's accomplishing by going that far in the opposite direction. He's going to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah knew better. Jonah was theologically sound. But I love, again, Warren Wiersbe just really summarized this well. He said, to a spiritually minded believer, the will of God is food that satisfies. It's just like honey. It tastes good. That's what you want. To a carnally minded believer, Jonah in this case, the will of God was medicine that choked him. You know, those of you that had kids, it's, that, it's the cherry cough syrup, right? They don't, they don't want that. They'll do anything to avoid the cherry cough syrup. That's why grape is such, uh, is always sold out in Walgreens, you know, because none of these kids want the cherry cough syrup because it doesn't taste like cherry. But the grape tastes like grape. I don't know how that works, but they can't figure out the cherry. But this is what the will of God is to a carnal believer. It's like choking on medicine. And we can see that in the eyes of Jonah. So he had great knowledge. He knew God's character. He knew his attributes. But somehow he thought he could flee from God's presence if he just left the promised land. Like Jonah knew Psalm 139, right? If I make my, my bed in heaven, you're there. If I, you know, if I make my bed in the, in the grave, you're there with me. You know what's really interesting about that? I'll, uh, you can flip with me. We'll, just, we'll come right back here. But Psalm 139, what's really fascinating is uh, because I, I do believe Jonah knew this psalm, but it's really fascinating to see where it goes. But verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Look at verse nine. If I take my, the wings of the morning and dwell in the utter, uttermost parts of the sea. Jonah knew that verse, and yet he's still trying to run on the sea. He's still trying to get away on water. And I think what he's hoping 
is that at some point, God will forget about him and use somebody else. That's what I think he's hoping mainly. You know, it's so interesting because his theology was orthodox, but as, as they use a, a term in theology, his orthopraxy, in other words, how he carried out his theology was a mess. And, you know, can, can you relate to him in some ways? Don't, don't we often know more than what we apply? Don't we often know more than what we actually implement in our life? And so Jonah is definitely a, a good example for that for us. Uh, again, I don't think he thought, he either thought God wouldn't find him. You know, carnality does some, uh, some bad things to your theology too. <laughs> Sometimes it can start confusing you theologically on what's going on. So he either thought God would not be able to find him or that God would give up on him. And I think that's probably what he thought. He, I think he was trying to avoid a second command to go to Nineveh. I think he was just trying to say, God, just find somebody else. I don't want this assignment. And so again, it was Jonah's proper knowledge, which, which is so funny. It was his actual, his accurate theology, his proper knowledge of God and his character that caused him to run away. Because it's basically saying, God, you're too good. You're too patient. You're too loving. Like there's something, and in a sense, by saying that, he's saying there's something wrong with you, God. Like you don't understand justice the way that I understand it because these guys definitely deserve justice. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve your patience. And isn't that the entire nature of the grace of God? Somebody getting something that they don't deserve. And you know what's so interesting is often we come to the book of Jonah and we think about the grace of God toward the Ninevites. And that's true. He's very gracious to the Ninevites. We ought to be thinking about the grace of God to a rebellious, hard-headed prophet because Jonah's going to get a lot of good things that he doesn't deserve either. In fact, if, if the story just ended there in chapter one, Jonah bought a fair, tried to go to Tarshish, God took him out. We'd have been like, okay, Lord, amen. I mean, he rebelled, right? He, he deserved it, right? But he's also going to get grace. He's also going to get love. He's also going to get concern from the Lord. And see, Jonah, at this point, he just felt he had a better handle on justice than God did. Very unwise way of thinking, very carnal way of thinking. And so in verse 4, we see God react. You know what's so interesting? Look at the words that start verse 3, but Jonah. Look at the words that start verse 4, but the Lord. See, the Lord's always going to have the last word. And we're going to see that in this story. Verse 4 uh, says this, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And I want you to notice just in verse one, you can mark this or just write it down. Notice how God acts in this chapter. He is the one taking activity. Verse one, he came to Jonah. Verse four, he sent out a great wind. When we get to verse 17, we're going to see the Lord had prepared a great fish. God is very active and intimately involved in this whole story. That's one thing I love about the Lord. You know, have you ever been around somebody? It, it, it's the worst feeling when you're working with somebody, you're in a relationship with somebody, you make a mistake, and then somebody writes you off. Never happened to you? Somebody writes you off. They quit talking to you. They quit looking at you. They quit responding to you. Worst feeling in the world. I remember as a young man, I got hired uh, to work on a construction site. Well, that was, that was problem number one. I didn't know anything about construction, not one thing. 
In fact, the, the guy that I worked for, he told me one day, he said, go get me the skill saw. I think I've told this story here before, but you've all slept since then, so it's going to sound new. My kids already know it because they've heard this a million times. He said, go get a skill saw. I walked into the room. I thought, there's going to be one saw laying there. Well, I saw like seven different saws. I'm like, I'm already in trouble with this guy. I can tell he doesn't like me because I don't know anything. So I just grabbed all seven saws and brought them to him. And then he, he was just like floored. He just thought I was probably the dumbest human being on planet Earth. Well, from that point forward in the summer, what he started to do is he would just drop me off at houses in the middle of nowhere that he was working on, just give me a trash bag and say, just clean up the trash. And he would come back for me like eight hours later. And, and basically, he wrote me off. And I just felt really worthless. I felt like I wasn't helping or doing anything. It's one of the things I love about God is when he has the, the right, to, so to speak, to write us off, he never does. He doesn't write us off. We're going to see that in the life of Jonah. The Lord sent out. It's kind of a softer translation. The full force of the verb is that he hurled. He, you know, he, he chunked it out there. He spun it out there. It's kind of the idea. He hurled this great wind out there because he is sovereign over nature. And we're going to see a delicate balance in the book of Jonah. And this is, I think, a, something to kind of just observe. God will generate circumstances in Jonah's life to, to drive him to a point where he's going to rely upon the Lord, but he never, let, he never violates Jonah's ability to choose. We're going to see that. But he, he works and orchestrates circumstances to drive Jonah to a point, I think, hoping and anticipating that Jonah will eventually respond. This is how much God cares. We're going to see him move in these circumstances. But again, he never violates Jonah's free ability to choose. So he sends this storm. You know, the Mediterranean Sea is actually known for its deadly storms. They're still finding wreckages of ships in the Mediterranean Sea to this day. There's storms that come up out there. They're hurricane-like. And they actually have coined a term known as medicanes. This is kind of a, a satellite image of one. It looks, um, that looks pretty nasty. I don't think I'd want to be in that area. But that's kind of the storms that arise um, on the, the Mediterranean Sea. And then uh, you'll see in the text there in verse 4, it says that the ship was about to be broken up. In Hebrew, it's actually a personification. It's the ship thought she would be broken apart or the ship seriously considered breaking apart. The idea is that the storm was so bad, even the ship wanted to give up. It's kind of the idea, okay? So it just puts it in point. And then as we go forward, you're gonna see this phrase repeated, and the storm grew more and good job pronouncing that. That's a tough word, tempestuous. The, the storm grew more tempestuous and more tempestuous. So it just kept getting worse as he was out there. And so this is, this is kind of putting it into play. In fact, it's so serious. Look at what verse 5 says. Then the mariners were afraid. These are tough, rugged men, seen storms on the Mediterranean before. But let's see how they respond. Verses 5 through 6, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lower parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And you know, as the old saying goes, there's no atheist in a foxhole. There's no atheists in foxholes. And we see this borne out in the mariners. They're starting to cry out to every God they could possibly think of, 
hoping, hoping that they would address the one that, that they had offended, obviously, thinking that they had offended somebody. And it just brings up the point that man is incurably religious. That's just the nature of man. And so given the right circumstances, given the right external pressures, given the right trials, oftentimes man will, will look outside of themselves for a solution. They get overwhelmed. Well, these men are in that position. You know, it reminds me, there was a, when I was doing my student teaching, I used to teach high school math. When I was doing my student teaching, I had an advisor from the university. It was a man in his upper 70s. He was, you know, just a, a step away from retirement. Um, but he had actually, in getting to know him, he had actually been captured during World War II. Um, he had been placed in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Now, if you know anything about those or ever read any stories, they did not treat American prisoners very well. In fact, they tortured them quite extensively. And so this man was, had experienced torture um, along with 20 other of his, uh, the soldiers that he was with. And um, he told me that they would keep him isolated, um, that these Japanese tormentors were, they were doing Photoshop before Photoshop was a thing. They were producing pictures uh, of people that they knew, loved ones, insinuating that other people were doing wrong things or, or uh, you know, bailing out on them at, back at home. And so they would stick bamboo shoot. I mean, it was just, it was like the Assyrians. I mean, these, these guys were terrible to these POWs. Well, as he shared the story, one day, unbeknownst to him, they only did it once. They took all 20 prisoners, put them in the same room and let them have an hour together. Now they didn't know they were gonna have an hour. They just all got thrown into the same room. He saw guys that he hadn't seen since basic training. He saw guys that obviously he had come into battle with all there, 20 plus men right there. And they said, well, what are, what are they putting us in here for? And they didn't say, I don't know. He said, these are hardened soldiers, none of them interested in spiritual things, always interested in drink, you know, drinking and, and getting back home to the girls and this kind of stuff. No mindset on spiritual things. And they said, well, what should we do? They're leaving us in here. And one guy said, well, um, I know Psalm 23, you want me to quote it? And he said, yeah, quote it. And so he got up in front of the, the room, they didn't have any books. And so he quoted Psalm 23 by memory. And the guy who was my student teacher, these men who were hardened, hardened soldiers and, and tough men. He said there was not a dry eye in the room because the external pressure of that situation had all caused them to look outside of themselves. And for the first time probably in their life, Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. He'll, he'll take care of me. And that meant something to them. And so you see, again, this human nature in the mariners here, looking, reaching out to something outside of themselves. They're fearful for their lives. And here's what's really sad is you've got a true prophet of God on board. You've got a guy that could quote Psalm 23. You've got a guy that can quote a lot of other verses. And guess what? Israel was designed to be a light to the Gentiles for this very reason that in these moments when they're searching and groping for the truth, they can step on the scene and say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about Yahweh. Let me tell you about his future kingdom. Let me tell you about a Messiah he's gonna, that he's going to send to take care of the sin problem, your problem and my problem. Let me tell you about a God that cares about you as well as me. Jonah had an opportunity, but you know what? He cared nothing for these men. He's down there sleeping away. He's like, arise, O oh sleeper. Arise, you little sleepyhead, right? I mean, get, get up. You pray to God, and it just shows his attitude of careless self-security, just totally careless. And so Jonah, 
guess what, had gone down <laughs> even further now into the lowest parts of the ship. And again, how could he sleep through all this? And what we're going to see is throughout this chapter, God continues to try to get Jonah's attention. The very fact that a heathen ship captain had to wake Jonah up to pray was embarrassing, should have been embarrassing to Jonah. In fact, you know what's so fascinating is you'll, you'll look in the account, you're not even going to find anywhere that says Jonah did pray. It's not even recorded. And, and, and quite frankly, what would he say? <laughs> I know why I'm here, Lord. I know why you sent the storm. I'm still not going back to Nineveh. <laughs> that probably would have been his prayer, and that probably wouldn't have gone over too well. So it's not even recorded. Uh, in fact, they don't know what to do. And so they're like, well, let's try to figure out who caused this storm. They're, they're going to trust this method, as you're going to see in verse 7, where they're going to cast lots. And so verses 7 through 9 It says, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So again, casting lots was kind of common in this day to try to, you know, figure out, you know, who who was responsible for what or who was doing what. So that was a very common thing. Oftentimes, even in Proverbs 16, it would say that that God would control the outcome of lots. So sometimes even God would allow this almost superstitious thing, but he, he would allow it to to let people know who was the cause in this case of the storm. And it was clearly Jonah. Uh, this method just exposed Jonah. You know, you've, if you've ever done that, like taking straws, you know, if you ever had friends and they're always, they're always trying to put the short ones up and, and trick you, you know, but, but in this case, Jonah ended up with a short stick. It was pretty clear and obvious that, that it was his fault uh, as to what happened. And so they start peppering him with these questions. And you're like, why are they, you know, part of it you look at and like, why are they trying to get to know Jonah here? This is like really, you know, this barrage of questions. What they're trying to ascertain is which deity have you offended? You, know, you notice all these questions like, where are you from? Who's your God? Why are you? You know, they're, starting, they're trying to figure out what deity has been offended so that they can just appease the deity. They figure he's done something really bad. He has, has done something to offend a deity of some sort. And, and then it appears that only part of Jonah's answer is recorded in verse 9 because of what is said in verse 10. Let's jump ahead. We, we won't get there quite yet. But the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? Again, notice that word for. This is the reason why they said this. For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, Jonah stepped onto the, stepped onto the boat and said, I'm buying a ticket to Tarshish. They oh, why are you going there? Because he wasn't a merchant. They said, I'm trying to run away from my God. And to the pagan mind, they thought, oh, we're safe. Because once we get away from the land, that God can't do anything to us. Well, now Jonah introduces something into the equation that they weren't expecting. And he says, in fact, it puts together the context for them really quick. In fact, look what he says at the end of verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And now they're like, you bonehead. Why? You're running from the God who made the sea? You're trying to get away on the sea that this God, 
what are you thinking, right? I mean, they're just looking at him from a very practical perspective, like, you're an idiot. You know, do you, are, you, know, do you ride the short bus? I mean, like, what's wrong with you, right? They're, they're saying, this is, this is insane. We'll see kind of how they, they say it. But notice what's so ironic is notice the questions that Jonah does answer and notice the questions he does not. You can kind of go through the list there. One of the things he does not answer is, is this, for whose cause is this trouble come upon us? He doesn't answer that question, although he, he will later, he'll admit to it. It's, well, it's because of me. And then the second thing that he says, he doesn't answer what occupation he was because that would have flat out been embarrassing because he was a man of God. He was a prophet of God. Even a pagan would say, why on earth (laughs) would you run away from a God? A God, you know, they're not recognizing him as the true God. And so what Jonah did tell them about Yahweh completely floored them. Are you insane? And I and I love this picture because this is really what they're asking, you know, telling them, how dare you do this to us? Because now it's not just you impacted Jonah, you've impacted the entire ship, right? You've put us all in danger. And so verse 10, this is how they, they say it. They say it in a question. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told him, told them. Literally, the, the men were exceedingly afraid. The, the idea is they were shaking in their boots. Again, why? Because Jonah had told them in verse 9 that his God had made the sea, and now he's running away from him on the sea. And so they were simply incredulous. They're like, what are you thinking? What were you? You should have shared that when, we, when you bought the ticket, because we would not have let you on here. We just said, find a different way. In fact, we're, by the way, in Jonah's answer, where, how would he flee from the Lord? He can't go by sea. He can't go by land. Airplanes hadn't been invented yet, but I mean, he, he couldn't go anywhere, any, anywhere from the presence of the Lord. And, and again, he knew this. They fled from this presence again for, this is why the sailors began to make the connection. It's all making sense now. Um, they were probably not too concerned, again, by Jonah's initial comment. Why? Because they thought, well, deity only resides over the land that it governs. So, so once we get off, once we get out of the port, his God can't affect us. So yeah, we'll take him to Tarshish. But once they realized that he was not localized to the nation of Israel, they, they're scared, okay? The, the storm scared them, but the knowledge of this scared them more, okay? This is really a problem. So they're, they're saying, what's, what's the solution, right? Okay. All right. You're the man of God. This is your God. You've offended him. What do we need to do to fix this? This is kind of the idea. And look with me in verses 11 through 12. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Again, they recognize their solution was in some way going to involve Jonah. Jonah, this is your God. How do we fix this? We don't want to go down with you. You did something dumb and stupid. We don't want to suffer the consequence of your decision. So how do we fix this? And, and we see that the storm, as, as kind of alluded to earlier, as all of this is going on, the storm is getting worse. The storm is getting more difficult. They've already thrown the cargo out, right, to lighten the load, to to protect them. But it's growing in intensity. It's growing in 
desperation. In fact, the, the phrase more tempestuous can literally be translated walking on and storming or storming, uh, making progress, right? Uh, it's, it's this idea, it just keeps growing. It keeps getting worse. And so you're trying to make a decision. It's a, it's a big decision, but you've got this storm in the background intensifying. Is it anyone that's been in our church and I've gotten the call from you where you've come into the church and the alarm's going off? You, you know that pressure, right? It's like, and I, it's like, okay, take a deep breath. It's, here's the code, right? But you know that pressure. You got something blaring in your ear. You, you, you don't even have time to make a decision. You got to make a quick decision. So they're just like, what do we do? Tell us what to do. And everything is getting worse. And so it's a difficult decision, difficult solution. Jonah owns the fact that it's his fault. He says, you know what's going to solve it? Throw me into the water. And, you know, you could look at Jonah's response and say, wow, what a, what a self-sacrificing guy. I mean, wow, he really cares for the mariners. He's really trying to help them here. But before we give him too much credit, there were actually a couple of other ways the storm, I believe, would have stopped. And this would have been more in line with him walking in the will of the Lord. Notice that he does not. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't immediately fall to his knees and confess his sin to the Lord, confess his sin of rebellion. Nor does he pray to the Lord in humble contrition. He doesn't even pray. He says, just throw me in the water, which is basically saying what? Kill me. <laughs> Kill me, why? Why do you want to die, Jonah? Because I still don't want my name associated with this message to Nineveh. So I'd rather just die than have my name associated with this guy. Notice what else he doesn't do. He could have said, hey, turn the ship around, head back to Joppa, and now I'll go fulfill my mission to Nineveh. He said, Lord, I, I'll go fulfill it now. Just if you'll get us back to Joppa, I'll get off the boat and I'll go straight there. He doesn't say that. He could have said that. I believe that would have stopped the storm. But notice that even now, even now in his rebellion, having seen a, in, in this incredible storm on the sea, having seen the fear in the eyes of the mariners, even now he says, you know what? I'd rather face death than fulfill God's purpose for my life. I would rather just die than have to deliver that message to that people. And he was willing to die. And we're going to see that that ends up what they do. But what it shows us is this, is that Jonah had thought long and hard about his rebellion against God. This wasn't something that he just came up with. This was a long, hard, committed way of thinking. And he was ready to see his choice through to the end. He was hard-headed and he was rebellious in this sense. By the way, the mariners didn't like the solution. <laughs> Verse 13 says this, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. The sailors knew something. If we throw Jonah into this water, this man will die. They didn't want to do that. They cared more, ironically enough, they cared more about Jonah's life than Jonah did about the hundreds of thousands of Ninevites in Assyria. You've got Pagan sailors showing more concern about human life than a prophet of God at this point. So they said, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to throw you off. We're going to try to row back. Um, I think God put an invisible wall there, um, and they couldn't do it. They, these strong men, they couldn't fight against this, this storm. They're physically unable. It was a storm of all storms. It kept getting worse. We see that it got more and more tempestuous. Now, we're going to leave this story there this morning, leave you in suspense, because I know you guys don't know how this story ends. <laughs> now, we all know how this story ends, and so we'll pick it up 
here next week. But I, I just, in terms of an application or a, something for us to consider in terms of a principle this morning, it is this, I want you to consider the, the mind-boggling, mind-boggling, stupid decisions that we can make when we're walking according to the flesh. We're seeing it illustrated here in the life of Jonah, that when we are carnal in our thinking, when we are convinced that our way is right, when we evaluate situations different than the Lord, and we evaluate that we are right in some way the Lord is wrong, we are capable of making very dumb, very dangerous decisions in our life. And just recognize that and be convinced, I think more than anything, that whatever God's will is for your life, you want that. (laughs) You don't want your will as much as you think you want your will, as much as we think we want what we want, just understand in the grand scheme of things, we don't. Be convinced of that. See that in the life of Jonah. Jonah didn't understand the big picture here. He understood the section of the parade that was passing before his eyes, and he made evaluation based on that. And he should have said what Jesus Christ said years later, not my will, but yours be done. I don't maybe understand this situation, Jonah. I don't understand why you're doing this, God, but you know what? I want your will. I don't want my own. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for the story this morning, uh, Jonah's life, the lessons we can learn from that. Lord, our heart's desire is is to walk in your will. We know you've got a will and a purpose for each one of us. If there are any here this morning who have not trusted in the finished work of your dear son, we know that your will for them would be that they might believe that message and, and gain eternal life as a free gift. For those of us that are, that are born again, that are part of your family, we know that you've got a purpose, you've got good works that you've designed us to walk in. Lord, that's what we want for our life. And so would you guide and lead us and take us by the hand and, and really just influence the way that we think, correct us where we're wrong. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.